You're listening to Indigenous Boom, a podcast by the Atlantic Policy Congress of First Nation Chief Secretariat, featuring conversations on Indigenous health, education, and economic prosperity. Now your host, Krista Thompson. Today, we are speaking with APC's own Vanessa Nevin. Vanessa has worked with APC over the past 10 years as a Director of Health. She has a vast range of experience and comes from Tobago-Negative First Nation. Vanessa leads a dynamic health department that works to improve the health and well-being of First Nations through participation of First Nations in planning, management, and delivery of health programs and services. Thank you so much, Vanessa, for participating. Can you discuss the response to COVID-19 in Atlantic Indigenous communities? And why did the communities have the need to protect themselves? What were the challenges the communities faced? And how prepared will Indigenous communities be if the next wave hits? Back in April, or back in March, our office started really hearing about COVID-19 and like what was going on. Um, Of course, we had seen it in the news back in like January and February and had heard things that were going on in New York and when it came to the Atlantic we were in Moncton so we were having a meeting we were hearing that there was cases in Moncton were travel related we had went forward with our health directors meeting because it was really important it dealt with Indian Day School and what happened was We went to have another meeting, or we went to book another meeting, and we couldn't. The health directors were already starting to tell us that we we couldn't book the meeting because they couldn't leave their communities. They were being told that um, travel was being restricted for their communities because of COVID-19. A couple days later, here at APC, the office shut down. So luckily for us, we had laptops, we had cell phones, we had um, great technology. So we had the ability to continue to work. We, even though we had this technology like um, video conferencing as well, we hadn't really used it all that much at this point. So for us, it was about just getting us situated, learning about what things were happening in the world and just trying to get ourselves grounded a little bit in March and fairly quickly ISK decided to have daily calls. So in the beginning, our executive director, John G. Paul was attending the meetings and he asked me to start attending them because they had to deal with a lot with health. So in the very beginning, the communities were like, okay, I've got to shut my community down. How do I do this? I also need to get PPE because I need to protect my staff. I need to protect my communities from this virus. Um, We need face masks. We need hand sanitizer. And then it was a real quick realization as well that um, community members that were living off of um, welfare had hardly any ability to stock up on food in case they had to self-isolate 
or cleaning supplies or get any of this PPE for themselves. So there was um, a real need for COVID-19 relief funding that was distinction-based. Um, is started rolling that out to, to community based on a modified Berger model. It basically is a, it's similar to a population-based model, but there's a couple other factors involved. So they roll that out to the communities. The communities in the beginning were like, okay, well, we have to shut our casinos down because that's a high-risk activity and we don't want our communities to be sick. So let's shut down the gaming, let's shut down our offices. Um, it was really um, that type of reaction to bring themselves inward to, to kind of figure out what do I need to do to ensure my community is safe. And when I look back at it now, I really think about colonial trauma. When we look at colonial trauma, there was so much disease that came to our continent that um, we had to learn to protect ourselves. We had to learn to protect ourselves from diseases um, that could potentially wipe out our nations. So that living memory is still with us. We're still living with the effects of past pandemics, like smallpox, like when um, the first explorers first came and brought diseases that we didn't have immunity to. So with this, we um, really took it seriously because we really needed to protect our elders, protect our knowledge keepers, protect our communities, because we realize how important it is to protect our nation and the people in our nation, because we needed to protect who we are for future generations. So I think the communities took it very seriously. Some communities um, started checkpoints uh, just to see if um, they could slow the traffic down a little bit, see where people were going, stop um, individuals that weren't from the community from um, coming to the community because they wanted to slow the transmission of the disease. Some communities were, were very um, worried to the point where they closed their borders completely. One community and it had a grocery store and the ability to completely close their borders. I believe they did that just as a way of trying to protect their community. Also, I think what First Nations did for Canada as well can't be understated because if COVID had gotten into our communities, we have overcrowded housing. We also have a lot of chronic disease, unfortunately, in our communities. So there's a lot of diabetes, heart disease, um, obesity, and other factors that play into our overall health. So if our communities had gotten it, one or two households could have overwhelmed a hospital. So because we have so many people living in our houses that have um, chronic disease conditions. So we needed to ensure that we did our part. So the communities took that very seriously. They were looking at health as being the major focus. How do we protect ourselves?
so with that, they made um, decisions about the economy because they had to shut down gaming, which was their own source revenue. But that, I believe they didn't realize how long that would have to shut down and what the economic impacts of that would be. And I think communities are still feeling that. I'm not sure that uh, everybody is aware of how much communities um, contribute to their health services in their communities, how much they use their own source revenue to support services that aren't funded by the government. When it comes to um, fishing, that was another major issue that arose on the calls. So with that, uh, there was a lot of concern that fishermen might bring back COVID-19 and how do we protect ourselves? Um, or how do we protect the fishermen that are going fishing for their livelihood? So there was a lot of um, discussion and debate, especially back in the spring while the fishing seasons were opening and while everybody was trying to figure this out because nobody had really lived through a pandemic. Nobody knew what to expect. Nobody knew how long this was going to be. Nobody, people talked about the new normal and this is our new normal, but I don't think that people completely grasped how long that would be. And I think in the beginning when, um, the funding came down for COVID-19, communities were focused on health, very much so. And they said, how can we protect our communities? Then uh, they started to think, okay, as time went on, we need to reopen. So they started opening up more so this summer. And how do we, some community health centers did close. I should also note that. Um, some communities, they, um, they made adjustments. They made um, things happen in their communities, like they increased cleaning, they um, got their PPE finally, they were able to deliver services in a safe way. Sometimes that meant virtual, sometimes that meant having only one client in the waiting room at one time, um, sometimes that meant um, just really planning to ensure that they could deliver these services in the safest way possible. So with that, um, our communities are now opening up more. A lot of the checkpoints have, or I think most of the checkpoints have come down. We're kind of in a lull right now because in the Atlantic bubble, there really isn't a lot of cases. So we don't really want to get complacent either because there is a fear that there will be a second wave and they're predicting that that may come in October. So one of the things that um, I think was beneficial from these COVID-19 calls is that chiefs started having calls with the chief medical officers from each of the provinces. So the New Brunswick chiefs met with the New Brunswick um, top doctor. Here in Nova Scotia, the chiefs met with Dr. Strang and they were able to ask questions. They were able to start to see how they can prepare and how they can adjust. So a lot of this year has been about adjusting to that new 
normal. And when that next wave hits, um, I, I really hope that we don't get to the point where we're complacent and we allow the virus to get into our communities because we've been so successful at keeping it out. When it comes to this next wave, of course, we don't want people to live in fear because fear and anxiety come with their own issues. So what we saw with um, a lot of anxiety um, over COVID-19 is some people started self-medicating more frequently. So that's led to like increased liquor sales, increased weed sales. The communities are noting that there is more um, drug use. Then they also noted as well, the virtual services, while they're great, not all communities have the capability or the technology to do that. And also clients don't always have the technology to um, converse with people. With um, they, Not everybody has their own iPhone. Some do, some don't. So that has been a barrier as well. When it comes to um, in-person services, we're still trying to really work that out so that it can be done in a safe way. So for instance, some communities like Tobik have a treatment center, but luckily they only have like three or four beds and they have enough bathrooms so that if they take clients in person, there's a lower risk of cross-contamination because they have their own bathroom. So these are the types of lessons that we're learning about, um, about COVID-19 and how we can proceed in the future with this reality. And if we get future pandemics, how can we um, take from this and learn so that we're not as affected in the future? When it comes to our outlook in the communities, I hope it's really positive. I hope that we continue to see low numbers in the Atlantic. And I hope to see that our communities continue to see zero cases because we did exceptionally well here in the Atlantic, especially our First Nations communities. Great, thank you. You have touched on every question. Just to follow up, right now there's an Indian Day School relief that's happening for the, the survivors of Indian Day School. And then also CERB is happening for people in the community. How do you feel those monies are affecting people in Indigenous communities right now? So the Indian Day School Settlement Agreement allows for um, compensation for Indian Day School survivors. So there's five different levels. Level one is 10,000 and level five is 200,000. To date, um, level one claims have been paid out. The higher level claims, level two to level five, um, they haven't been paid out by Canada as of yet. They're still working their way through the system. It's been a mixed blessing slash problem because of the fact that with the level one claims, they were simple. Did you attend the school? Did you 
like it was a, a check mark off if you received um, certain abuses you were eligible and it was a simple process level two to level five required a narrative where you discussed what those abuses were uh, your application would go to Canada for 60 to 90 days for their comment then it would come back to the accounting firm that's managing the um, Indian Day School Settlement Agreement called Deloitte, where they would do a substantive review. What's happened is that um, initial payments of 10,000 started coming out in March. So that was great for a lot of the communities because when there was not a lot of um, people able to buy, First Nations people were able to go out and purchase things because they were receiving those level one claims. So they were able to to get um, healthy foods for their um, families. They were able to purchase things that they needed, like some people purchased um, new furniture, some people purchased cars. Uh, they were able to do things that increased the value of their lives and made their lives easier during this time. When it came to level two to level five, it was a little bit more challenging because there was a lot more disclosures that were happening. And we were already seeing that it was causing a lot of emotional strife within our communities back in January and the previous year. When COVID hit, what happened was the anxiety from COVID-19 actually pushed the Indian Day School stuff underground a little bit because people weren't really thinking about that. They were thinking about, okay, COVID-19 is here and what's going to happen with this. Over time, as they're starting to go back to their normal lives, they're making inquiries about their higher level claims, that anxiety from um, the Indian Day School of application process of feeling I don't know, maybe judged or maybe insecure about their abuses or, or not, um, well, not so much insecure about their abuses because they know that the abuses happened. What they're probably fearing is that, will I be believed? So they're in this ambivalent spot of not knowing. So when you don't know something, there's a lot of anxiety. Similar to COVID, we didn't know everything, and we still don't, and that's causing more anxiety. So I think the two are compounding each other. When it comes to the SERP, I do know that um, people that were making not enough money really to survive, this has actually kind of been a, a little bit of a blessing. I'm not sure... Um, around the eligibility of everybody that is applied, but only time will tell what will happen with that. I think that uh, the CERB has been helpful for people to be able to better feed their families, better pay their bills, and et cetera. So I think those economic supports are always helpful for everybody. Another question, domestic violence, child welfare issues, would you say those have increased within the communities during this time? It's hard to say. 
I'm not quite sure if um, there's been increased domestic violence or increased uh, child welfare incidents. I'm not sure. I haven't heard that. I've heard on a national basis that there's been an overall increase when it comes to domestic violence throughout the country. Um, I think that when you have people stuck in in a home all day long, what happens is whatever problems were there, um, all COVID-19 did was throw a giant spotlight on it. So if you were in a family that had dealt with issues, then you were probably relatively fine. If you were, um, say, for example, a couple that were having a lot of um, issues in your relationship, this may have caused um, situations where domestic violence could be present. When it comes to the child welfare stuff, I know that there was concerns raised on the calls because children weren't going to school, so there wasn't enough um, information there to say if there was kids being abused or not being abused. So I really can't completely answer those questions because we just don't have that, that data. So for moving forward, what would you say would should be the priority for the chiefs when it comes to the health and well-being of the Atlantic Indigenous communities? Well, right now, we already have two chief priorities that are kind of front and center with this. Um, one is on chronic disease and one's on mental health. So those priorities have already been chosen by the chiefs because we already know that chronic disease is something that affects our communities. Um, we have higher rates of diabetes. We have higher rates, as I said, heart disease. Um, and other chronic diseases. So how do we look at addressing what those chronic diseases are to improve the overall health? Also, investments in mental health are, are crucial because what happens is, is like I said, that the, this pandemic has thrown a giant spotlight on any issues that are happening within community. So mental health isn't going to get you a new house, but mental health may help you make some key decisions on how you can move forward in your life in a positive way. How you can deal with some historic traumas from Indian Day School or Indian Residential School. How you can make future decisions that affect your life. I honestly believe that our communities as well, as well have been looking at ways that they can increase their physical fitness. They've also been looking at ways that they can increase their overall health. I heard that St. Mary's had um, a lot of gardens. What they decided to do was they were really worried about food security because that was an issue that was coming up. So a lot of people have started community gardens because we weren't sure where we would be. We weren't sure back in the spring when we were looking at this worldwide pandemic and there was sometimes when you go to the grocery store it didn't matter how much money you had you couldn't get things like hamburger um, not because there was no cows it was because meat processing plants were being shut down because they were getting COVID so like I've said is this pandemic has just sh shone a 
spotlight on areas in even our food chain where we were reliant on grocery stores. Well, we're still reliant on grocery stores, but it really has demonstrated to us as well, like areas that we need to really work on. Definitely. It sounds like we need um, improvements in access to technology and a really good plan for food security. And it, it, we also need to address the issues that are in the room, like colonial trauma has caused a lot of issues over the years. When you look at chronic disease, you look at it from like a public health perspective and the social determinants of health. So if we can improve the social determinants of health by people having good jobs, better access to fresh fruits and vegetables and better homes, um, more opportunities and overall social wellness, you won't see some of the chronic diseases that are showing up within our communities. Our communities are still dealing with a lot of the, the historic trauma and how it plays out sometimes is it, it shows up in our bodies physically. So from um, that perspective as well, we have to look at how can we increase mental health services and part of our mental health has to be culture as foundation. How do we look at our identity as a Mi'kmaq person or a Maliseet person or an Innu person to say, how can we connect with our culture in a way that's meaningful, that improves our quality of life too? Because culture is foundational to our mental health and our overall health. Definitely agree with that. Thank you so much, Vanessa. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. And yeah, have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Indigenous Boom, the new podcast from the Atlantic Policy Congress of First Nation Chiefs Secretariat.